introduce our panel tonight. So we have Connie Fishbein, we have Greg Mueller, and we have Dr. Black. I know better. Okie dokie. Take so it over, Greg. I'm just going to kick off. Um, <laughs> you know, it's great to, to be here. So some of you that have been around for a while know that we've, we've given this talk, this is our third time, I think, to the club, fourth time to the club, but over the last, you know, 25 years or so. Um, and so the way we got it set up is, if you eat a mushroom, that you shouldn't, and you uh, have a problem, you would run into kind of all three of us. So Connie would be the person you'd be on the phone to at the uh, Illinois Poison Center. And so she's a poison uh, specialist. Um, then they usually call me or somebody like me to identify the fungus. And then if we figure out the need to actual treatment, you'll get an MD like Dr. Black, who's with uh, the, the um, Texacom Consortium is uh, the medical group that services the Illinois Poison Center. She's normally Cook County. She's a senior fellow there, but she also bops around. So what you said today, you were at uh, Glenview, right? Yeah. So, uh, so what we're going to do is kind of divide up the thing. Like um, if you made a phone call, so we'd start with Connie, go to me, and then go to uh, Elizabeth. So Connie. Um, our talk tonight is about mushroom poisoning, and I'm going to start out. Um, I'm going to start out first talking about the classic eight groups that um, we recognize, and their toxicology and pharmacology. And um, so this is how we approach mushroom poisoning: it's by um, by assessing them in terms of the clinical syndromes that uh, we see, and. Um, these are caused by specific toxins that are in the mushrooms, and they give rise to these distinct syndromes. Now, when I first started, there were eight recognized, and actually there's a ninth one now, plus there are some outliers that I won't be getting into. Um, but, let's see here. And with, much, with respect to mushroom poisoning, an important rule of thumb to remember is that the longer the delay in the onset of symptoms, the, the more severe the poisoning and the worse the sort of toxin involved. Conversely, the shorter the delay in the onset of symptoms, usually it's a more benign species, although some of these do get referred to the hospital as well, most of them well. Okay, um, okay so there are five of the groups are early onset. Typically, symptoms start within 30 minutes to two hours post-ingestion, sometimes as late as three. And for most of these groups, we've identified toxins, um, with the exception of groups having uh, GI irritants. For the um, late onset groups, um, there are three of these, uh, groups one, two, and eight. Um, and these typically have a, a long, much longer delay, um, six to 24 hours. And a group eight, arelanine, has the uh, longest delay. It's uh, typically the onset for the initial phase is about 30, 30 plus hours. Um, now this first group, cyclopeptides, um, these are responsible for the majority of deaths from mushroom poisoning, typically over 95%, I think is the percentage. Um, and this is a um, this is a group of compounds, amatoxins, phallotoxins, and virotoxins. And what they do is they bind to, they get absorbed, they bind to RNA and DNA in the cell and, and stop protein synthesis. So the cells die and then ultimately they'll lead to, to um, organ failure. 
And typically the um, tissues that are affected most are the ones that have the highest rate of cell turnover and have the largest exposure. And that's the gastrointestinal tract and the liver and to some extent the kidneys. Um, again, it's a, it's a delayed onset, 6 to 24 hours. And um, some representative species from this group are Ammonitas, Lepiotas, Gallerinas, and there's a Canosophy species in the Pacific Northwest, Canosophy phalaris, which we don't see here, fortunately. That's a, that one grows on the lawn. Okay, so um, this is the chemical structure of, of a couple of the cyclopeptides. Amatoxins are the ones that are most significant for humans. And as you can see, these are, these are complex structures, they're multi-ring, and they're very stable, which is why they're so toxic. They can't be broken down by heat, so you can't cook them out of the mushroom. They're resistant to freezing and drying, and there's no enzyme system in the body that can break it down. And um, they're also highly toxic. These are some of the most toxic compounds known. Just to compare that to some, some of the other toxins you may be familiar with, um, alpha ammonite, this is the one that uh, is responsible for the major poisoning in humans. The estimated oral lethal dose for like an average 70 kilogram individual is about six to seven milligrams compared to cyanide salts, which are 200 to 300 milligrams, arsenic trioxide 70 to 180, and strychnine 30 to 120. Now this last one, um, VX is a, a chemical nerve agent. It's a, nerve, a chemical weapon. Um, and it's about 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, um, but it, this is by the dermal route, so it's not the best comparison. Um, but that's about the same um, Ammonita is uh, point, approximately 0.1 milligram per kilogram for a 70 kilogram person. The second group, gyromitrin, um, these are found in one species, a gyromitra species, or actually multiple, in more than only in the gyromitra genus. Um, this is, um, this is, these are actually, in terms of their poisoning, they're very similar to group one in that they have a delayed onset gastroenteritis that can, in some cases, go on to involve the liver or the kidneys, uh, but also involves the central nervous system. Gyromitrin is the chemical that's found in the mushroom, and then it's metabolized to two hydrazines. There's N-methyl and formal hydrazine and monomethyl hydrazine, which is also another name for this group. It's often called the monomethyl hydrazine group. So monomethyl hydrazine um, inhibits the synthesis of a neurotransmitter called GABA. It's in the central nervous system, and it's an inhibitory neuro neurotransmitter. And when it's suppressed, you see excitation in the central nervous system and seizures. And fortunately, there's an antidote for that, um, which we'll be talking about later. Um, and um, in this case, the onset is uh, 6 to 12 hours. And there's a, fair, there's, um, a lot of variability from, individual, you know, from person to person regarding who becomes toxic. And it's not very well understood. It may be dose-dependent, but some people can eat this mushroom and be fine. They can eat it for years, and then all of a sudden one day they, they eat it and they get sick. And some people get sick right off the bat. So it's always best just to avoid this one. Um, there was also a, um, another type of toxicity called methemoglobinemia, um, which is basically a condition where hemoglobin in the blood is altered slightly, so it doesn't hold oxygen very well, and patients look blue, literally. I've had people have been described as smurf blue. Um, and, that's an infrequent occurrence. I've only seen it once, and I've been in the poison center for 37 years. Um, but um, there's also an antidote for that as well. So we'll be talking about that later. Um, well, this is an out-of-focus picture of um, 
This was sent to us from uh, Downstate Hospital. Pardon? The room was great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, when we, we ask us when we ask our callers to send us images, we always ask them to include a ruler or some sort of an object so we can get an idea of the dimension. But this is um, what we think is well. It's supposed to be battered put morcella, but we think there might have been some gyromitra in there as well, like this one on the left possibly. Um, but in any case, this was a person who had primarily gastrointestinal symptoms, you know, nausea, vomiting, that lasted into the following day, so I think he was admitted, but he did well overall, and he didn't go, move on to more the hepatotoxicity or the renal effects. So now we're moving into the early onset groups. Um, muscarine, first one, group number three, and coping group number four. Um, now muscarine was actually first discovered in Ammonita muscaria, but it's only present in trace amounts, so Ammonita muscaria is not part of this group, even though it kind of sounds like it would be. Um, see here, muscarine, okay, this is a uh, um, chemical structure of muscarine on the top, and another neurotransmitter, acetylcholine on the bottom. Are you guys familiar with acetylcholine? Did you get this in biology or any of that? It's, uh, okay, it's involved in the, in the involuntary portion of the nervous system. It's also involved in the central nervous system as well, but with respect to muscarine, muscarine only acts in the peripheral part. And it's, um, it's, it um, increases um, digestion, it slows the heart rate. It actually, it's like the opposite of the fight or flight response. So it's, it's more like, uh, I know I would associate with more like, like eating and relaxation. So again, it increases gut motility, it slows down the heart rate, it increases salivation, um, some, and sweating, and it binds to the same receptors as acetylcholine, but it doesn't get broken down by the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. So you get this continuous stimulation, and what we see in the patients is profuse vomiting, diarrhea, salivating, tearing, it slows the heart rate, and causes secretions in the, in the respiratory tract, and um, fortunately there's an antidote for this one too. Okay, some of the representative species for this are um, Inoski species, and there's a Clytosomy species called Clytosomy gilbata. It's also known as a sweater because of this cholinergic effect. Okay, group four is the uh, coprine group. And these are only toxic when combined with alcohol. And not all of the inky cap species are, uh, contain this compound. Um, are any of you familiar with the drug antabuse? Um, this is a drug that was uh, used to be used not so much anymore, but it was used to treat chronic alcoholics, and it, would, it was used to discourage them from drinking because it would make them really sick. It inhibits the liver from metabolizing alcohol. So you get a buildup of a toxic intermediate that causes you know, vomiting and dizziness, weakness, confusion. Um, in severe cases, it can lower the blood pressure significantly. Um, so um, again, it's only, the, so the, in this case, in the mushroom, Coprine is metabolized to another substance which works just like anabuse. It blocks the liver from metabolizing alcohol. So if you um, ingest, say, this, well, this is the classic mushroom in the Coprinopsis atramentarius. We call it um, Coprinus atramentaria. Um, this is the classic example. And if you, if you drink alcohol while you eat this mushroom, or if you, even if you consume alcohol several days later, you can still get that effect. Now, not all of the inky caps have that chemical. Um, this is Coprinus micaceus or Coprinellus micacea. 
And we see a lot of this at the Poison Center. It's a very common urban mushroom, and kids get into it all the time. But from pictures, when, when, when I get pictures of an inky cap, I'm not 100% sure which one it is and if it's going to interact with the alcohol. So I always tell the parents, you know, make sure their kids don't get into any alcohol. And, um, and there are other, I mean, obviously they're not going to be giving them beer or wine, but there are other sources of alcohol, like um, cough cold syrups, hand sanitizers, over 60% alcohol, um, mouthwashes are about 20%, and perfumes and colognes are another source as well. So these next two groups, again, early onset symptoms typically, with, you'll see within two, two to three hours. Um, these are the two psychoactive groups. Um, the first one, ibotenic acid, is um, this is this is the group with Ammonita muscaria and also Ammonita pantherina. That's another one in this in this area that we see. Um, and it, there are two two chemicals that have been identified: um, ibotenic acid, which is in the mushroom, and then it's metabolite mucinol. Um, so Ammonita muscaria is real. Um, I mean, this is a pretty iconic mushroom. I think it's probably everybody would recognize it. Um, there's a lot of folklore and mythology about it. It's the Alice in Wonderland mushroom. And on my Android cell phone, the mushroom emoji has a red cap, white polka dots, and a white stem. <laughs> so, um, so um, and this is, this is known, um, particularly the European and Russian Siberian species, to cause a kind of glorious intoxication is how it's been described. Um, one writer described it as um, feeling like a superhero, that you could take on Muhammad Ali. Um, and then it's followed by a, a state of, uh, like a deep coma, coma-like sleep that just resolves spontaneously, typically in about eight to 12 hours. You can be hung over for about 25 hours after this. For 20. Um, but um, the chemicals, um, let's see here. Okay, I don't have a picture of the uh, ibotenic acid, um, but ibotenic acid is structurally related to another neurotransmitter in the central nervous system called glutamic acid, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, and that correlates with the initial phase of excitement and euphoria and inebriation. Mucimol is structurally related to GABA, gamma-aminobutyric gamma acid, which we already talked about with the gyromitrin group. So initially we see the excitation and the inebriation, and then later we see the um, coma-like sleep because of the stimulation of GABA receptors. The next group, this is, um, this is from High Times Magazine, it's kind of an earlier edition, but every year they used to have a, an issue devoted to hallucinogenic mushrooms. And th these, this group is considered the true hallucinogens, um, whereas the previous group are more like an inebriation type syndrome. So the, the main um, the chemicals isolated from this are psilocybin and psilocin, probably some other ones as well. Um, they're found in a variety of species as well. The psilocybin species are most known for this, and gymnopolis. Um, even the, some of the paniola species, paniolus phonosecchii, is very trace amounts. So you know, you're not going to get high if you eat mushrooms from the lawn. But, um, they're structurally related to LSD. And, um, and it's believed that it has a similar effect as LSD. And um, again, it causes true hallucinations. Thank you, sir. Uh, no, go right ahead. Thank you, sir. No problem. Okay. Um, the last, oh, 
forgot about this one. Um, this is from uh, the 60s. It's a poster you could buy at head shops. Um, it's a kind of a parody of the Surgeon General warning that started coming out then. You know, they put on the cigarette packages. Shrooms, no laughing matter until you've taken them. Um, now, now you can get this on eBay, in case anybody's interested. <laughs> and this is a picture that was sent to us from a woman whose son was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. He'd just been admitted, and she found these in his room. And they're, uh, Pat Leacock identified these for us. And they're um, philosophy species, or psychedelic species. So it's, it's unclear if he was really psychotic. This may have been a misdiagnosis, or if, um, if he'd just been doing mushrooms. So, uh, and we never typically follow up with psychiatric hospitals. They don't typically call us, but, um, so we don't know what the outcome was. So our, the last early onset group is the biggest. This is the gastrointestinal irritants. It's a large number of mushrooms, uh, a lot of different species, uh, a lot of varying toxins, and most of them have not been identified or characterized. The um, common examples are chlorophyllum molybdides. In fact, that's, this is, chlorophyllum is probably the, um, the most common cause of mushroom poisoning in North America. Um, another one we see a lot is Amphilotus ludens, some of the Garrett species. Um, let's see, again, onset is, is, is rapid. Uh, I've seen it you know, as early as 30 minutes, and it doesn't take much. Um, and patients typically have you know, profuse vomiting, abdominal cramping, and diarrhea, and we usually send them in because they get pretty dehydrated. There is also poisoning um, gastrointestinal type symptoms that are, isn't caused by, uh, by the mushrooms per se or by the toxins, but by bacterial contamination. You know, if you don't store it properly or you pick some really old mushrooms, um, they can absorb chemicals from the environment, so they can absorb herbicides and pesticides. Uh, there's individual sensitivities and allergies, and if you eat too many of them, you can get sick. And um, if you eat them raw, wild mushrooms eaten raw can also cause gastrointestinal symptoms. Oh, and these are a couple photos that were sent to us from the hospital. Uh, that title page is actually the, uh, the other side of it, chlorophyllum. And then we have Amphilotus on the right. Okay. Group eight, this is um, the last of the classic groups. Arelanine. Um, we never used to worry about this because it was only seen in Europe. And, um, and um, it, was, uh, to, it wasn't discovered until the early 1950s um, because the onset of symptoms is delayed, um, at least the initial phase is typically 30 hours out and then the kidney failure occurs two to three weeks later. So it, you know, for many years, probably nobody ever suspected these mushrooms as being poisonous until there was an outbreak of kidney failure in Poland and an epidemiologist there managed to piece together and connect all the dots that all of these patients, and there were like a little over 100, you know, 11 of them died, but all of them had consumed quaternarious mushrooms within the few weeks before the onset of the kidney failure. So the mechanism isn't well understood, um, and again, this is primarily in quaternary species, and um, never used to worry about this until 2010. There was uh, there was a published confirmed case of a patient in Michigan, Western Michigan, who developed chronic kidney failure after eating a quaternary species. So now it's something we have to worry about. But it was identified as arelanine, in the, as the toxin, and the um, mushroom was named Cortinarius aurelinosus because of its similarities to Cortinarius aurelinus. See here, um, 
This is group nine, Amadinus smithiana. This is the newest one. Uh, doesn't occur here, it's in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, so I won't say too much about it, but it doesn't fit our general rule of early onset, benign, late onset, life-threatening, poisoning. Um, this is renal failure with early onset. Um, the, the, and it has a gastrointestinal phase initially, like some of the other more seriously toxic groups, um, which starts as early as um, 30 minutes to 14 hours after ingestion, and then the kidney failure can start anywhere from one to four days later. All right, and um, um, for anybody who's interested, the um, toxins involved are identified as alenic norleucine and chlorocrotoglycine. So I think, let's see here. Oh, this is a Michael. This is from Michael Quo. Thank you. He's one of our consultants. This is a Ammonitis smithiana. Okay, and uh, I'm going to give it over to Greg now. So I, thanks, Penny. So what I'm going to do is more talk about the mushrooms that are involved. Um, and I start with this mushroom. It's not, you know, didn't fit in any one of uh, Connie's comments because, you know, just as a warning, some people have individual sensitivities to mushrooms. So I know people that can't eat the black morel. There's no standard toxin, you know, group to that. But people can eat chocolate or can eat strawberries, you know where people don't understand how they can live, but that's okay, but some people can't eat some mushrooms. So, you know, the rule of thumb always is for, if you haven't eaten the mushroom, you take, you know, a tablespoonful the first night, try it, make sure you're cool, then you can just add, gradually add more and more because it may not be one of the classic toxic mushrooms, but you could still have an issue with it. But anyway, back to the classic ones, you know, kind of, you know, I'm just going to go through the same groups with more talk about what fungi are involved. So as Connie mentioned, the cyclopeptides, the aminotoxin ones, are primarily a group of amanitas. But, you know, not all amanitas have aminotoxins. This is that Canospe uh, uh, filiaris, which uh, luckily we don't have, the Galarine and the Lepiota. And so here's just some pictures of these things. And so this is the standard, um, this is the death angel. This is Amanita, um, I'm having to forget, just blanked out. But it doesn't natively occur here, we're lucky. It is an introduced species to the US. It's now on the east coast and west coast, but it's common in Europe, Amanita floides. Um, and so this is where most mushroom deaths are from this particular mushroom. What we have in the Chicago area is Amanita bisporigia and some of these other pure white Amanitas, right? We know it's an amanita. It's got a, um, a vulva at the base, the, the death cup. Uh, it's got an annulus. If you look underneath, it has gills that don't attach to the, to the stem and white spores. And so that's an amanita. And so this is a deadly amanita. And the other common thing we have in the area is the Gallarina, uh, Gallarina autumnalis. And this grows on wood. And it is you know, shiny, uh, usually a shiny kind of slippery black, uh, maybe a little bit sticky cap, um, a kind of tough uh, fibrous stem. It has a little ring, has brown spores. And if you look at it under the microscope, it's finely ornamented spores. Um, I once had somebody who was actually a club member, and I think she's still a lot, alive, she doesn't come to meetings anymore, but told me she'd say anything on wood because she thinks it's fine. No, this thing will kill you as much as one of these. So, you know, you really gotta know what you're doing, even if you're just collecting off of wood. 
And here's the other one. So again, here's the, uh, the one of the Amanitas that have these compounds. Amanitas, Lepiotas that have the compounds. We've got a number of Lepiotas in the area. None of them are tasty, and a couple of them could cause trouble. So, you know, I stay away from Lepiotas. Lepiotas are somewhat similar to Amanita in characters in the fact that they've got free gills and a ring oftentimes, but they don't have a vulva. Okay? And then here's that uh, Canospe filiaris uh, that we don't have around here. It's a little tiny mushroom. Uh, when I was a postdoc in Seattle, um, people would go out and, because we had the, the psilocybes all over the lawns, and people would collect tons. And we felt we had to identify them if they brought things in because Canospe filiaris was in the area and they could get themselves into problem uh, if they misidentified things. Once had a kid come in with a baggie. I mean, it was totally filled with mushrooms. And he comes to us and says, well, you know, I'm really not going to eat this. I just want to know what they are. And we said to ourselves, sure, you just spent the last four hours on your hands and knees picking this thing because you want to know what they are. But that's, that's, that's my next move. I haven't got to sell yet. Um, so the second group, you know, are these monomethylhydrazines. You know, kind of it's basically the ingredient of rocket fuel, so it's not really good. And again, it's mainly the gyromitras, the helivellas, the sarcospheras, the pizizas. So these cup fungi, basically, right? So here's our um, morcella, uh, morcella, our, our gyromitra, thank you. One of the species of gyromitra is gyromitra esculenta. How did that name get there? Because some people do eat these things. And it's kind of so there's a lot of variation, and we don't know if it's all uh, individual variation or geographic variation. So um, I don't eat them. And then also, as Connie mentioned, some people can eat them for a while, but you never know when it's your last supper. Because uh, with repeated Easter, it may build up. And uh, so I do not eat Jaramitas, even though they look awfully tasty. Um, uh, the same thing for the, for the pizizes, these cup fungi. A lot of those have these um, monomethylhydrazines. The cholinergetic ones, the clytosabes, inosabes, mycena pura are the main ones that are there. And so here's the inosabes. Most of them are so ugly, I don't think most people actively go out to search for them. Kids get into them, but I mean, they're just not that attractive of a mushroom. The common name is the fiber head, right? Because if you look at the cap, there's these fibrous uh, scales forming these striations on, on the top. It has brown spores, whatever else. Here's the Clytosby um, uh, delbata. And the Clytosbys are fairly good sized mushrooms. They have gills that run down a little bit down to the stem. Um, and so, I don't know. They're fairly nondescript looking mushrooms. Uh, the delbata, the deltata are all white ones. Uh, but again, some of the clytospes are, uh, fall into this group. And then this is um, the Mycena pura, this beautiful purple um, mushroom. Very attractive. It doesn't really look that appealing, and you don't want to eat it anyway. But it's a very distinctive mushroom. This is one that I guess you could maybe think it's a bluet, would be the only thing you'd confuse it with. Uh, the anabuse ones, again, it's really just Coprinus atomenteris and some others like that. Here's a typical big cluster. Um, Connie was actually kind of uh, generous to parents because I, I had parents 
on the phone that have given their kids a little wine or something to help cool them down. So I always ask if somebody calls me, you know, not just not the cough syrup, but uh, no wine or beer either. Um, the uh, anticholinergic, the other group of amanitas, um, the, the common one here is muscaria, but it's pantherina, it's a bunch of the other ones again. So an amanita, as far as toxin goes, an amanita is not an amanita as an amanita. You know, there's that group that is deadly toxic, others that form this group, and you'll see there's some that cause gastrointestinal problems. And there are some, not here, but there are some in Europe and other places that are actually tasty and edible. I've never taken it upon myself to try it. Everybody else said they're great, but they're amanitas, guys. I don't need amanitas. <laughs> Um, the psychedelics, you know, it's mainly we think of the uh, psilocybes, but the, the, there's other things. Uh, kind of, I forgot who all I have pictures of. Oh, I guess I just said the one. So, um, Penialina fenicii, this is the lawnmower mushroom, really common mushroom uh, in our lawns. Uh, I get calls, well, I get referred calls from the poison center on uh, Penialina oftentimes. In no case of, I've never, you know, there's reports from fairly old that these things, that some kids had a trip on them. I've never, we've never experienced it around here that I know of. Um, but again, one of the characteristic of most of these, the Gymnopolis, the Penialinas, the Pluteus, the Psilospes, and I don't know if this shows it, is that they have, uh, if you feel the stem, they get a blue-green uh, color change. And so, um, yeah, I had, you know, it's one of these funny things. You know, of course, it was just uh, a coincidence. But the first time I was someplace where there was a bunch of psilocybes, and I was trying to take a picture, every one of my pictures came back fuzzy. <laughs> it wasn't my fault, guys. I wasn't, but anyway, something was weird. But it took me a long time to get a picture of my psilocybes. Um, <laughs> The gastrointestinal group, I have two pages of these things, because there's agaricus, there's other amanitas, there's various bolates, a lot of them that um, have uh, red pores or stained blue, uh, chlorophyllomonditis, we'll talk about that some more, some other clytosopes, antilomas, um, hemolomas, helvella, lac some lactarius that we think are so tasty, but some of them are not. Uh, other lepiotas, you know, just a whole Lophilotus olearis, a whole group of things form these uh, gastrointestinal problems. One of them here pulled out, Paxillus involutus is usually considered just a gastrointestinal, but there's been some reports that you can get more severe uh, interactions. Some people actually pull it out as a separate toxin group. If you had repeated ingestion over years, it looks like the toxin builds up over time. And just some common pictures, you know, here's our uh, chlorophyllum, and I know they're out now because I had a call from Poison Center yesterday and a call from Poison Center today. Um, and the one today is, the uh, person was in the emergency room, they had symptoms 30 minutes after ingestion, just textbook of what's going on. Uh, this is the, the jack-o'-lantern fungus, a lot of you know that one. Jack-o'-lantern not only because of the pur uh, purple, orange color, but also it glows. Um, and so, um, and, uh, but it's a really common misidentified mushroom. People think it's the chanterelle uh, because of the orange color and has gills that run down the stem. And I'll talk about that a little bit, but 
it's definitely a different beast. Um, Bolates, you know, most bolates are, I mean, that'll be great edibles, but most are not toxic. The ones that are toxic are ones that have red pores. And some of them that, if you touch them, stain blue. And so I usually stay away from my blue stainers, though there are some edible blue stainers. But if you stay away from edible blue, if you stay away from blue stainers, you know you're safe. Um, this is the Cortinarius borelanus. I guess the now it's the new name is Rubellus. And uh, as Connie was talking about, we thought it was just a West Coast and European thing until recently, where we know it at least can be in the greater region. It's probably more with conifers, and so we don't have a lot of conifers right here, but if you go into Wisconsin or Michigan or whatever else, you can run into it. And then this is a, uh, so one that's been more, I think it was finally discovered in 95, I think. It doesn't occur in this area at all. It's in Asia, in Japan, it was discovered. Uh, Japan, Taiwan, uh, parts of mainland China, whatever else. And it's from a Rushula species, Rushula subnagropes. Um, we don't have the species here, it doesn't occur in Europe, whatever else, but it's another uh, toxin group called rabin, rabinosis. Yeah, yes, that's what that one does. So I just want to end with just saying, you know, subtle characters are important when you're identifying these things, right? So here we have a, a suite of early spring fungi. We've got our wonderful morel, which people love. You know, your gyromitra, which I've just told you you shouldn't eat. Uh, you know, you can tell the difference easy one. You know, this is this honeycomb, saddle shape. If you cut this in half, it's hollow. This has got chambers, it's not hollow. Helvella, the same thing, kind of the saddle shape, not hollow inside. And then your typical cup fungus. Um, would, you know, so these guys all could have the monomethylhydrazine. Tasty. Um, this is an interesting one, all fairly similar looking mushrooms, right? So this is our uh, Agaricus campestris, the closest relative to the store mushroom, all tasty. Chlorophyllum molymdides makes you pretty sick, but you, unless you're predisposed, elderly, really young, don't get treated by, for dehydration, you're probably not gonna die. And then this is our Amanita bisperigera, which can kill you. What's the differences? This has got, you know, they're all whitish, all have a ring. This has got brown spores. Now there are brown spores that are toxic, but in this case it's not. This has greenish spores, and then this has white spores with the cup. So again, you know, you just, they're really easy to tell apart if you know what you're looking for. Um, chanterelles, tasty, tasty. Even better, uh, um, black trumpets, right? And then here's our uh, Ophelotus again. That again, a lot of people, not and too many people mistake this for that. Even things like puffballs, these are going to be gastrointestinal. You know, you cut them in half, pure white, you always want to cut your puffballs perfectly in half. You need to look like bunny bread, wonder bread inside. If not, they could be the pigskin puffballs, which will cause stomach upset. Uh, you might end up eating one of these, which is probably not going to hurt you. But you can also have a button of an amanita, uh, which you probably don't want to eat. And then last, I think this is my second last slide, uh, the uh, bolates, again, wonderful, tasty bolates, but some of them stain blue, I'd stay away from that, stay away from the red ones. 
this one's also starting to get a little old. You know, you don't eat old vegetables, don't eat old mushrooms. Um, oh, oh, maybe we have another one. So this is the armillaria. A lot of people like armillarias. This is gallerina. Looks pretty similar at times, right? Difference is that if you take a spore print, this is white spores, brown spores. So just a simple spore print will keep you from getting yourself in trouble with the gallerina. Um, Bluets, all tasty, nice, and fine. Cortinarius, this is not the deadly Cortinarius, but it still would probably cause stomach upset. And then, so I just put this on the end. You know, there are some really easy to identify mushrooms that you can't confuse with anything like this. And so if you're not sure, try that. Um, if not, if not, uh, we were talking at dinner. Our, one of our less favorite phone calls is, I just ate this mushroom, what is it? So, you know, <laughs> when in doubt, call first. <laughs> Elizabeth. Hi, I am Liz Black. I am a toxicology fellow with the Toxicon Consortium, which is at Cook and UIC. I'm also an emergency medicine doctor. So can everybody hear me? Am I loud enough? That's usually not my problem, but okay. All right, so this is an overview of the treatment of mushroom toxicity. Um, so after they've already called Connie and after he's already identified everything, I end up with them. Usually either in the ER or as a tox person on consult to the specific kind of poisoning. So unfortunately, as an overview of these, the majority of mushroom-related ingestions, there's nothing specific I can do. I can't give you like a magic bullet to fix what you took um, or what this patient took. Um, mostly, there's two that do have specific antidotes or at least a specific course of treatment that might help. Um, and the majority of the research about these is directed towards the am amatoxin and the amanita and the in those because those cause I think 96% of fatalities worldwide so obviously people are a little more focused on those um, so like I said this is like basically what I can do most of it is just doing the same supportive care over and over and over again like the same fluids the same stuff that we do from everyone there's a tiny little chunk that's actually specific toxicology stuff there are two exceptions, which are your gyrometras and some in your cyclopeptide mushrooms. So those are the ones where something different might happen. Um, if someone walks into the ER, everyone gets this. We make sure they can breathe. We make sure they have a pulse. We make sure that they're able to like get good air in and out. And then in talks, um, we usually decontaminate them. Um, Conveniently, when someone shows up with a mushroom ingestion, the first thing they start doing is vomiting and having profuse diarrhea. So it's very convenient for me because they're already decontaminating themselves. Um, the other things that we can do is for um, decontamination, the big thing is charcoal, which is activated charcoal. It's this slurry that apparently tastes horrible. It's viscous, it's nasty. But what it does do is it binds to toxins if they're in your stomach, say less than two hours after you ate them. So if someone comes in, they have a good time period, someone carefully identified this before they got sick, we can give them this and it'll bind the toxin up and they shouldn't get sick in the first place. So that's the best thing that this is used for. Um, 
for everyone else, what we, we have what we call supportive care. In 99% of these, that's going to be giving you fluids, getting you getting them rehydrated, making sure their electrolytes are all stable, all of that kind of stuff. Medications that we typically give people is if this is one of the early ones, like the little brown mushrooms, we can give you anti-nausea medication, we can give you anti-diarrheals, we can help kind of treat those symptoms because the toxin isn't really going to kill you. Um, in the some of the recreational mushrooms people might get a little bit agitated they might not be having a very good time um, so we can give benzodiazepines to sort of calm that down and get you through it um, the other thing is time most of these with enough time you'll get better we just have to get you through to that point whether that's 6 to 12 hours while you come down off of your terrible trip or if that's long enough for your kidneys to recover to make it on their own those are what we're usually going for with these guys um, so, of these, the Amanitis mithiana and the um, Aurelian species, these guys both cause renal failure, occasionally severe enough that there's permanent damage. Both are treated with the same supportive care we mentioned before, and if the renal injury is bad enough, they might get dialysis. Some people have to, some people recover in weeks. Most of the Amanitas do recover, but the Aurelian, um, those people have ended up on long-term permanent dialysis to the point that sometimes they get kidney transplants because their kidneys are just shot and now useless. Um, of these guys, did I say no I didn't, okay. Um, of the muscarine ones, most of these you just get kind of wet. Um, it's uncomfortable, you have coughing, but it usually just goes away with time. It just again needs fluids, benzodiazepines, there's not really a specific antidote for these guys. Um, for psilocybes, uh, this is the serotonin analog that Connie was mentioning earlier. The big thing about these is um, this is mostly just the benzodiazepines. These are the people that are hallucinating. Sometimes they didn't realize what was happening and now they're really hallucinating and they're upset. The other problem is sometimes it also causes nausea and vomiting. So you're puking on yourself while you're agitated and hallucinating, which sounds like my personal version of hell. Um, but anti-nausea, fluid medications, benzodiazepines, put them in a calm room. These people will get better quickly. Um, on to the ones that actually have a uh, antidote. Um, on this side we have your morels, which are delicious, and then you have your gyrometra, which are also apparently taste very good, but could cause seizures. Um, risk, benefit. Um, so this is a basic overview of how this works. This is your glutamate, your gabamate that Connie was talking about earlier. If you have your glutamate going on, this is your excitatory stuff. This is your I'm awake, everything's fine. And then your gab is your more inhibitory, like let's slow down, everything's calm. It's usually like a seesaw, a nice balance. Um, what the monomethylhydrazines do is they inhibit this enzyme, which converts vitamin B6 into this other enzyme, which converts your glutamate into your GABA. So basically is it hocks the bottom off the seesaw and all you have is glutamate which is just this excitatory thing. If it doesn't have anything to balance it out, you're just going, 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 your brain is firing, going nuts, and you end up basically seizing. The problem is that you can't, it's actually a fairly simple um, solution. The treatment for this is we give you pyridoxine, which is vitamin B6. Um, there's cases of people not having enough IV forms in the hospital, so it's literally just vitamin B6 supplements that you grind up and stick down a tube in their throat. It basically just overloads it so whatever enzyme you have left has enough stuff to move it on. 
So that's how we treat that. We just replace what you can't make anymore. Um, pretty straightforward, but the big problem with this, like I said, is a lot of times the hospitals sort of just run out of it, unfortunately. Um, On to the cyclopeptide species. And again, these guys, um, this is less than 24 hours usually. This is like 12 hours before this stuff kind of heads off. Um, so for your cyclopeptides, this one is a little bit of a um, problem. So the idea, um, it kills 96% of the people that die of mushroom poisoning. It's a big problem. Um, so if you, all you have is supportive care, all you have is benzodiazepines, all you have is the fluid, all you have is getting them in the hospital, watching them, you've got a survival rate of about 56.5%. So flip a coin, live or die. Not great. So obviously what we're trying to do is find like some kind of antidote, some sort of just like pill and it's reverse and you're better. We don't have that yet. We have a couple theories on what to do. Um, and most of these are one of two things. Either we want to get the toxin out of your body or we want to prevent liver damage at a cellular level. The last ditch thing is you just replace the liver. If it's fried and it's gone and you can't do anything with it anymore, it's a liver transplant. The problem with that is when you get these, these people do get very sick. So there's a problem of they have to be so sick that it's worth it to transplant the liver. It's worth that risk and it's worth assigning an organ that's in very rare supply to this person. But you also have to balance that with, are they well enough to actually survive the surgery? So there's a very fine line to walk on that, that generally liver transplant surgeons are the ones that are really the only ones qualified to make that decision. Um, so the ways this kind of works is the problem with this is you absorb this toxin, it gets in your blood, gets in your liver, it goes through your gallbladder, which then recycles it back into your small intestine. So you have this nasty cycle where everything's just spinning around. It's not, it's a problem because you have, it just spits everything right back into your liver, which is where the majority of the toxicity occurs. So there are three ways to kind of stop this from happening. One way is you put a tube down there put a tube down, go to where everything feeds out of the gallbladder and just suck it up. Just keep constantly aspirating everything that's being put out of there. Um, that's one way to do it. The other way is to just dump that charcoal we talked about, put it down the tube, put it in their stomach and just keep cycling it through for like up to three days until you're sure that there's nothing else being pumped out. The most dramatic way that's only really done in Europe is you put a tube directly in their gallbladder or their biliary drain, like surgically, and then just drain all of the bile out so it doesn't have a chance to get back in. That's a lot more aggressive than most things we usually do. It's in the literature. I haven't seen it in the United States because we just don't have enough of these, and that's controversial even in Europe. It's not a slam dunk either way. Uh, so um, that's how that works. Um, so of these, the, uh, there are treatments that sort of prevent or ameliorate your liver damage itself. Um, it's silymarin, which is milk thistle, NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, which is the Tylenol antidote, and not really well described. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't have good evidence, but you have literally nothing else because you're in, I don't know, Alaska and there's nothing there. Uh, high, high dose penicillin. Um, the idea is, so, the NAC, the N-acetylcysteine, is the Tylenol antidote. It can just help prevent liver damages. It kind of scavenges free radicals. It can help your, your hepatocytes survive. 
In this case, it's basically just a liver vitamin while your liver is being damaged. Um, penicillin, no one's quite sure how it works. It only has a little bit of evidence. It's a little bit better than just giving them supportive care, but not a lot. You might hedge like another five, 10% out of that if you're lucky. Um, but it might disrupt protein binding so the drug can't get in. It's generally kind of confusing and we don't have great evidence for that. So um, the thing that we actually have that's looking promising is this silymarin, which is milk thistle. In the plant, you have a combination of these three chemicals, but the silabinin is, I can't pronounce this, there's too many eyes altogether, um, is the one that we're actually looking at. The theory is it stops the toxin from getting in because it binds to the transporter that moves it into the liver and just takes up all the space so it doesn't get moved in anymore. So that's the theory about how that works. Um, and it's currently doing pretty good. They, it, these studies are cherry-picked, like this, there's some bias here, but in at least one, one or two, three, four of these studies that they tested this, they had a 98.6 survival rate using this, using this as a medication. Again, it's, it's a, the studies aren't as big as other ones, and these patients might not have been as sick as the ones in the 58.6% like, survive rate, but this is currently the, on the moving forward as this is at the very least worth trying. Um, so, those are basically all the antidotes I have, and like I said, everything else is just fluids, basic medications, and weighted out. Um, Connie, your shoes are on what? And that's all I got. Uh, anyone questions about that? Thank you. Yeah. Is the silicon available now? I know for a while you had to have You have to call this guy who makes you do 12 other things. Um, it is available, but you have to get, there's another ongoing trial with it. You can get it, it's just tricky, but I think the guy who had like the 12 thing and like you have to do like 70 different tests for him to give it to you, that one I think is done, and so now there's another trial just testing the okay. on its own. Okay. Yeah. All right. Question. Yeah. Is there uh, any mushrooms that are antidotes to other mushrooms? Not that I'm aware of, or at the very least, I think any, not that I'm aware of. No, you mean, yeah, I've never heard uh, It would probably just, the only thing you could do is if you accidentally get amanita, you could probably eat a bunch of the little brown mushrooms and induce immediate vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I can think of to deal with that. They all seem to be hydrocarbons. No, not quite. A lot of them are like a lot of, there's a lot of chains, a lot of like proteins, that kind of stuff. Not yeah. a lot of hydrocarbons. But they're all, they're all, they're all organic C's, molecules. Yeah. They're yeah. all yeah. organic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're all, they're all organic. They're all sure. rather simple and rather primitive looking. Yeah. Yeah. Except for the cyclopeptides. Yeah, except for yeah. those nests. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to kind of um, discuss briefly um, what we do when we get a call. Um, and uh, it all, it, um, years ago we used to, you know, just really get, a, you know, get worked up and send a mushroom to Greg or, or Waltz or whoever was available because we didn't know what we were looking at or there was no way to really understand what we were, we were dealing with by a phone description. So um, one day back in uh, 2000, um, I got a call from a state trooper in Southern Illinois. Um, his daughter had just, his two-year-old daughter had just ingested a mushroom from the lawn. And back then, not many people had digital cameras, but his department did. And I had conferenced Pat Leacock on the phone, and he offered to send some digital images. 
and we thought, well, you know, why the heck not? I mean, that wasn't typically you didn't identify mushrooms from pictures because you needed more specific information to get a, a positive ID. But uh, we just thought, you know, why, why not? And um, basically, from the image, we were able to identify, or Pat was able to identify, that it was a, like a benign canosophy species. And um, we decided, you know, this is kind of interesting, let's pursue this whole idea of digital imaging. And what we found was that we could, um, with, you know, with the aid of a professional mycologist, we could rule out the bad characters. You know, we could see if there was enough information in the digital images. You know, if we explained to the callers how to take these pictures, we could get, um, we could make clinical decisions. So um, anyway, then we published it, and thank you very much, Greg and Pat. This would have never happened without you guys. And um, this was published back in 2003. And some of the mycologists through the years that have, that have been working with us, this is a list of ones that we've been working with, probably recognize some of the names. Um, and that's a picture from a, 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 a workshop on mushroom identification that I attended in Carbondale uh, years ago. It's uh, Bob Gessner on the left, Andy Methvin, and Walt Sundberg standing in front of a big carb morel. And um, this, I, I love this picture. Uh, you know, we, we um, ask people to send us images, you know, if they have, you know, in the case where they consume most of the mushrooms. We ask if there's you know any specimens left over. They can photograph and send it to us. But sometimes they take us literally, and they actually send us pictures of leftovers. And uh, like, like great, you know, I see an onion and uh, so um, this was uh, this was an important case. This was in 2008. Um, somebody got a call on the overnight shift. Um, this was a patient. Um, in, in the Chicago area, we've been collecting little brown mushrooms all summer long in her yard, cooking them, eating them without any problem. And then in September, some little mushrooms came up near the pine trees in her yard, and she ate those as well. And about 12 hours later, she was having a gastroenteritis. And then 12 hours after that, she went to the hospital. And all they had were some cooked specimens to send us pictures of. We sent these to Pat. We, Pat Lee Cup looked at the pictures and. Um, send them over because he thought it might be some bad type of Leviodo. And it did turn out to be a mushroom. I don't think this had ever been identified here before, Leviodo subincarnata. But it's one of the amatoxin-containing species. And um, this person actually went on to get a, a, a liver transplant. Yeah. So, uh, and, then, and then there's always some fun things that we get. Um, this was a, uh, you know, we always tell people to um, be sure to include an object like a ruler or a coin or something so we can get, you know, estimate the size of the mushroom and um, and want to get pictures of the upper surface and then the undersurface of the cap as well. And this was front, sent by a high school teacher who was freaking out after one of his students ate some of this on a dare. It's just a non-toxic parchment fungus sterium. And, uh, and he even turned it, the mushrooms over for us and wrote poison on it. <laughs> 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 So, and then, um, this is our uh, classic little brown mushroom, or LBMs, little brown mushrooms, or shrooms, I like to refer to them as. And um, we have an email address where people send us um, the, the images. It's called shrooms911 at hotmail.com. Yes, we have the last published hotmail address. <laughs> 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 
we may need to uh, so, hybrid and, that and, uh, for this. You know, we, we get a lot of, we, there, it's not just mushrooms now that we get emails from. Uh, we, uh, we get pictures of plants and insects and, and snakes, but this is one of my favorites. Um, there's chryzone beans on the stove. Okay, where did you find that radioactive spider? LOL, Lala caught it and stopped it from going into your room. Oh shit. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so remember, when you leave tonight, there are old mushroom hunters, there are bold <laughs> mushroom hunters, but there are no old gold mushroom hunters. <laughs> I think we have some time for questions, right? If there are any? Yeah. If, if you're uh, far from the hospital, what are the first steps to do before you get there? So this is actually kind of um, interesting. So there's, um, I guess I'll show you my cup So uh, back in the day, there was Ipecac, which is the cathartic that you vomit. You can't buy it anymore except it, like from a veterinarian who's like on the black market. But honestly, if you, this would be one of the few, we never recommend inducing vomiting, never. We don't recommend it anymore because too many people choked on their vomit and it was bad and didn't have good outcomes. If you ingested like a, a bad cyclopeptide species, I would try to make yourself vomit, like try to purge as much as you can. Um, alternatively, theoretically, milk protein, um, like protein can bind some stuff up, so a bunch of egg whites and vomiting might be eggs, might be a breast fat. That's a very, there's no evidence behind that. This is purely theoretical, because there's no Ipecac anymore. There's a little bit of evidence that Ipecac might help. You can't get it anymore. So, get back to the hospital. Yeah. Interesting, because I was told, maybe it was Kai, I don't remember, maybe it was Steve X, yeah. is that the trouble with Ipecac is, if you're closer to civilization, yeah. if you take that, can't get anything else down because you keep throwing up. Yeah. And so you can't get the charcoal down. So. Yeah. If you were that far away, you know, like you have to like. You're not gonna get away. charcoal anyway. I would yeah. just yeah. Yeah. Most of the, most of the time, yeah. the problem is that you know the symptoms are delayed long enough right. that by the time you realize you've eaten the wrong thing, yes. it's, it's late. Yeah. This would be like the situation yeah. where like you ate something and it was on the table and then like you happened to come by for dinner. What did you do? Like oh no, go. Yeah. In general. Go to the ER as soon as possible. Yeah. Can you give us some idea of how many incidents like, per year or in Chicago or in How often does this happen? How busy are you? You know, that's a really good question, and I, I didn't get a chance to look at any of the statistics this year. It varies kind of from year to year, depending on what kind of mushroom. There's been a lot of rain or whatever. Um, but. Um, I thought you told me one year like 300 or something like that. Did you tell me that one year? That, that might have been. might have been like a little longer year. That's mm -hmm. a lot of large But, um, yeah. I mean, it gets filtered down. So I get about, I think we get maybe 50 calls maybe by the time you sort through everything. Yeah, some years is whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. But I think some of them were identified at your end. So, yeah. I, and then, but yeah, I get maybe two. Maybe two. Yeah. A year. But there was, and this is older data, there was on average nine mushroom deaths in the U.S. a year. But that's now a couple of years old yeah. data. Yeah, last year there were only two deaths. Right. Yeah. So that's an average, because right. yeah. there's sometimes, you know, and it's they're more often in the West Coast, uh, new immigrants that don't know what they're, they think they're eating something from home. Uh, 
they are. Um, I just a comment because um, you mentioned uh, veterinarians. Yeah. Among my non mushroom hunting friends, they usually have no idea what I'm talking about. But one person was like, oh, yeah, Amanita. This is my veterinarian friend. So this happens with dogs a lot. And you let them out the yard and they eat everything. You were just talking so, about yes. that. Yes. Well, I was about this. I was wishing that the state would train the quantity control specialists to do dog calls. Because people calls, almost all of my people calls, come through the poison center. So. Dog calls, I get individual dog owners. So this last Thursday I was in a meeting, I get a I see a I see a phone call comes in, I didn't know the name. And like two seconds later there was an email that came in, again I didn't know the name, then another phone call, I better hear what's going on. It was a new puppy. And so the dog, you know, so a very uh, emotional person on the other end of the puppy was fine, but yeah. Yeah, bad. Is there a place uh, on the website or somewhere that we can look at the data, how many, you know, emotional poisonings are happening either in the state or in Chicago or we can look. The only thing I can think of is the APCC. I think that's public information and they can go to the annual report. Yeah, we have it. It's not live. If we have it, it's yeah, not it's live. Yeah. And it would be like, I think. Yeah, the most recent is 2017. We don't have the data yet from 2017. So Betty was reminding me that NAMA, North American Mycological Association, does a toxicology report almost every year, but that's dependent upon emergency rooms or whatever else to report. So they can only, they, they summarize what has been reported. And that's published every year. There's a toxicology group with NAMA that, that ends up publishing a, sum, uh, a summary of, of cases. From there the are reports from these emergency rooms mandatory or voluntary? It's voluntary. Um, yeah, I think, well, if there were ever, like, a bad outbreak, like, the poison center, like, part of their function would be to identify it, and usually when we find something, like, this has never happened, but we've had it happen with other substances and other things, there's generally a pretty robust public health response when, if they identify an outbreak. So, if a farmer's market had gyrometra instead of morels, she would be, she would, she'd be on that. Right. Yeah. Are mammals, older mammals like deer, squirrels, those kind of creatures, are they affected by? Uh, it, it, varied, it, it varies probably from species to species. I know squirrels can eat ammonita, dysphoridaria. So can deer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so that, that old uh, adage <laughs> that just watch what other critters eat, they <laughs> 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 got different digestive yeah. systems. Not, different not enzymes, sure. different, yeah, different ways of absorbing. You probably don't absorb it. Mm -hmm. Have yeah. you heard uh, how well that program in France is where they create uh, pharmacists to identify mushrooms and you can go to any drugstore and they have a pretty good idea of what you're holding? Is that, is that working? So there are several European countries that do that, that have, like at the market, they'll have somebody um, it was more prevalent before. I don't know if it's still ongoing. So, yeah, there's. It depends on where you are. I know Switzerland had a, a series like that. I know parts of France did, parts of Germany. I don't know how prevalent it is. Yeah. Are there more mushroom poisonings in other countries than in the U.S.? Sorry, that was just the sense I was getting. Yeah. This stuff. Yeah. 
Well, there's a lot more mushroom ingestion in other countries, you know? So if you're in Poland or Russia or where everybody's out every weekend, there's just an increased chance of getting something wrong. Thank you. I, speaking just to fatalities, multiple, multiple, multiple times more in other countries. The United States is really low on the fatality issue. How long well trained is like your average emergency room office? Like, if I don't have been in your emergency room, am I really going to have to advocate for myself or the doctor's probably going to call somebody that knows something and I can trust to do it? Like, am I going to get this celebin or am I going to have to be like, hey, you need to look at this now? So if you mention it, they'll almost they'll usually contact the poison center if no delay. And then on the other end of the phone is uh, an expert who will then relay all that information to them, and she'll also be able to kind of risk stratify. Sorry, this is more question yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, but for the ER doctor, probably not great. No, uh, that's why they call us. So you can switch to make sure they call you. Yeah. Exactly. Are there any kind of chemical tests that? we as foragers can't perform on the mushroom before we ingest it to see if it's toxic or not? Yeah, the old so, silver spoon. No, silver spoon does not work. Yeah, there is this thing called a Meister test where you take an old piece of newsprint out of typical, it's got to have a lot of lipid in the paper, and then what is it? And then for the gastrointestinals, we don't even know what the compound is. So you can't test for something. You don't know what the compounds are for all the time. So, uh, yeah. so the best is just know what you're eating. And, and maybe keep the sample. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I don't like casseroles or other... You know. uh, did you, yeah, um, I'd like to see the actual mushrooms. Recently, there was an article in the Atlantic that talks about like this, this proliferating or this um, really fast growing the death cap angel being sort of their, their blooming everywhere on the, the east uh, west coast. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, can any of you speak to that? Is yeah. That, is that what you're wondering or is that actually a thing? So yeah, so uh, this kept uh, Amanita, uh, it's a European species. It has been introduced in three places now, one country, uh, two spots on the East Coast, one in California, and it's behaving like an invasive species. You know, whether you've got an invasive plant, invasive insect, when it doesn't have anything to control it, it is expanding. Now it's fascinating because the two, the three different spots are expanding differently. So the California one seems to be staying pretty much put and not really growing much. The Pennsylvania, fair word is the East Coast, is expanding some. It's not near close to here, so you know I don't think it will ever get this far west. Uh, but there are areas, and so a uh, good colleague of mine uh, at University of Wisconsin Madison. And Pringle has been studying that and actually mapping that whole bit with invasive species. So the recent phenomenon. No, it was introduced turn of last century, something like that. So it's just you know growing, you know, expanding, expanding, expanding. Someone put a paper out like a couple of years ago that has like a heat map, basically of how it's expanding. I yeah. don't have that. Yeah. Um, can a person take 
milk thistle seed or tincture prophylactically daily to help ward off the toxins, just like there, there's a mouse study that yeah. it seemed to have some benefit. More than likely not, because um, it looks like a lot of the, tr the treatment medications are specifically a, the milk thistle is like three components, it's up to like 80%. But it looks like the con the ones they're using for treatment in humans were a lot higher concentration, and I don't I'm not aware of any data in humans that supports prophylactic treatment. It's used as um, a treatment after an exposure has already occurred, and the data looks good, but it's not there yet as a slam dunk antidote. So that wouldn't be recommended, and there's not really evidence for it yet. So what part of the plant do you process to do this? That's a great question. I think it's part of like the, like, it's part of the, I actually don't know the answer to that, so I'm not going to speculate. There was a, a guy in France 15 years ago, 20 years ago, that was pushing taking high doses of vitamin C prophylactically. Uh, I never heard that he died, but uh, he swore that to take his high doses of C, got there, and he could eat amanitas. That was online as falling, huh? Yeah, there was one falling, yeah. He was, he never got a cold either, this dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where do the uh, mushrooms that cause rhabdomyosis fall? Are those an outlier species or are they one of these groups you talked about? What are the outliers? I think that's Paxil. Yeah, it's Paxil. Paxil Sigillomus. Yeah, or Trichloma species. Yeah, it's right. yeah. yeah. France, right? Those are France? Uh, yeah, I think I they're. So, but I, yeah. Was that what the angel wings were doing too? I think the angel wings, um, there's three we didn't go really go into. There's one, there's the one in Japan that causes like a lot of like hepatic confusion. Um, That's the one I showed the last yeah, yeah, and then there's a one that causes like a hemolytic anemia, and then there's the rhabdo one. They're separate. I think the angel wing might be the hemolysis, but I'm not 100% certain. I don't know what angel wing is. I don't know what, you know. I've got like, uh, I think it was, I think it's the Japan one. They look okay. like, kind of like oysters. Yeah. Actually, hang on. I can probably... Right, there, there is a little... Yeah. Which I didn't know was toxic though. But anyway, so it's the, around here, the one I, I called out is the uh, Pexillus involutus, that with repeated ingestion over years can cause the rhabdomyolysis. Uh, but I have never... It's not common here at all, so I don't think anybody's going to get it. Either. No, that's like there's like 16 cases there, and they're all the it was a French paper. They all got very, very sick, and two of them died. But there aren't any reports of that in the United States. Okay. Have any of you ingested any of these mushrooms that are toxic? And what was it? I was actually trying not to think of asking you guys if anybody's ever gotten ill after ingesting mushrooms you collected. So I've had two cases. You had <laughs> I, yeah, personally, yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't a mushroom toxin. It was really bad judgment on my part. Um, I had been I collected mushroom the day before on an IMA four and I got some morels. Um, just three of them I think. And uh, and then the, and then the day that I ate them I had been on a long bike ride in Burlington, Wisconsin where they have their annual chocolate ride. And all the rest stops had chocolate. So I ate chocolate all day long, and then I came home and cooked morels. And sure enough, 30 minutes later, and it all came up, and I did not call the police because I knew exactly what was going on. So what 
kind of a bad choice. It was just the, the chocolate was the problem? Yeah, I think it was the combination of, yeah, probably just eating too much chocolate and then eating the morels on top of it. Maybe the morels, maybe they, maybe I should have eaten them the day before, you know, when I picked them. But um, in any case, yeah, so I, I'm guilty of it. <laughs> um, the angel wings ones are different. Those were in Japan. It was an outbreak and it involved a people with patients that all already had kidney disease and then they developed like an encephalopathy, like a lot of confusion, a lot of neurologic problems. Nine, nine out of 32 of them died. And it's a mushroom that's generally safe in the usual population, but all of these patients that had bad kidney function to start out with then got very sick. Also, I think only reported in Japan, maybe a couple cases in Germany. Thank you. Next. You, I'm sorry, you had you mentioned that one, of course, should always cook wild mushrooms. Yeah. But, but in saying wild mushrooms, the uh, store mushrooms as well should also be cooked? Or yes. In all cases? In all cases? All cases. I mean, there are traits. Yeah. Okay, that's what I. That, somebody asked me about that, and I wasn't sure. That there was data that came out on that, and then it was kind of suppressed by the the Salisbury uh, <laughs> exactly. um, But you know, so probably a few is okay. I mean, but it tastes better cooked anyway. So yeah. why bother? These people found just to see them and eat them, but. You. I was wondering why why is dialysis not an early treatment um, or oh. a start start of treatment for these? So um, first. For the ones that specifically cause kidney failure, it is. It doesn't treat the toxin at all, it just treats, treats the underlying issue. Unfortunately, the cyclopeptides from the amatoxin, those don't come out in the diacylate. It doesn't filter them out, it stays in your blood. They did a lot of tests, a lot of people tried really hard to get that to work, because it, like, it makes sense, it makes sense, right? Um, but it didn't pull out any of the toxin out of the body, which was unfortunate, because that would work, but it doesn't. So the only way it would work is if an antagonist was created to... No, it wouldn't work with dialysis regardless, just because the size of the molecule, the way it binds to protein and where it is in the body, it just isn't amenable to get caught in the filter. Um, there's a, several, like there's three properties for something to come out. This one sort of misses the track on several of them. It just doesn't work, unfortunately. Maybe one more? Yeah. Can you find any uh, mushrooms growing either in the Arctic or Antarctic? Arctic lots, tons and tons and tons. Antarctic in the areas where it falls in this part of the year, yeah, there's I think eight or nine species of mushrooms growing from Antarctic. Yeah, I mean there's a wooden structure found in Antarctica. Oh yeah, there are those things, but yeah, I thought native. There are, I think, eight species, at least in the past, I haven't checked recently, there were eight species of mushroom-like things known from Antarctica, but Arctic? Tons of tons of tons. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>